Hear God's word from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Gentlemen, married gentlemen, if you ever sat down with your future father-in-law to ask for your wife's hand in marriage, you remember the awkward small talk beforehand. I couldn't handle it when I sat down with my father-in-law. I jumped right to the chase. I admitted to him. I said, if there's something I got to say, I got to say it. And I got something to say. And so I said, I'm going to tell you what we both know I'm here for. And I jumped right in and I asked. Peter's getting to that part in his letter. He says, I've, I've got something to say and I need to say it. And here's the point, And it's difficult. And, and Peter says, I need to urge you in these ways. And it's going to be a challenge. But the difference here is that his words so far have not been small talk. He has, in fact, instead laid out the foundation and the true hope and the new identity that makes this difficult challenge possible. And so as he jumps in and says, I urge you, here's really what I'm trying to get at in this letter. He has already reminded them time and time again, and he's going to remind them again this morning. It's because of this foundation in your identity as beloved by God. And because that is true, you now can do this challenge as you remember the hope and the foundation that you have. And so he gives a general charge this morning in verses 11 and 12. And then he gives four specific applications of this charge to his readers there in Asia Minor. Remember those who are facing a lot of trials because they have ideological differences with the culture in which they live. And he gives them four specific applications all the way through chapter 3, verse 7. I was going to try to be bold and cover all four this morning, but halfway through the week realized I can't do that. So we're going to get just to the first application this morning. The first application is to citizens under the government. The second is to slaves under their masters. The third is to wives toward their husbands. And the fourth is husbands toward their wives. And those are the four applications, and we will be getting to them in due time in the coming weeks. But this morning, we'll look at that initial charge and then the specific uh, first application to citizens who live under earthly authorities. And he's going to command them to be free as they live in subjection to their authorities. Does that sound 
contradictory. Do you hear that? Free people who are in subjection to their authorities. If that sounds confusing, then you have now sniffed out the main point of what he's getting at. Hang on, it's coming. Let's just jump right in. We're going to look at the preparation for the struggle in verse 11. We're going to look at honorable living among the Gentiles in verse 12. We're going to look at honorable living specifically under the government in verse 13, and then what it means to be free servants in verses 16 and 17. Here you'll see in verses 11 and 12, this is the introduction. Uh, In these introductory verses, Peter encourages the Christians in Asia Minor to live in a godly way in the eyes of the world. He's not telling them to be hypocrites and to live one way that is inconsistent with who you are, but instead he's encouraging them while you're being watched, especially in light of these certain needs in your culture, in your time right now, considering these trials that you're facing in Asia Minor in this godless culture, he's encouraging them to have special mindfulness for how they are going to be perceived as sojourners and exiles, as Christians in this world. The world is watching and you're going to be different. And so he says, let your life adorn the message of the gospel and let your life mirror the character of God, especially in these four ways that he will get to. But he prepares them first for the struggle here in verse 11. He reminds them as he has already told them so far in the letter since verse chapter 1, verse 1, he's reminding them that you are beloved, you are elect, you have an inheritance, you have a noble task. You know how people always say that if you're going to give somebody a difficult word or a challenge, you should couch it with a compliment at the beginning and a compliment at the end. In some senses, that's what Peter's doing here. And maybe instead what he's done so far is more like that epic pep talk in that movie where the the underdog team heads into the final half of the game and beats, uh, at the the buzzer, uh, beats the opponent and makes school history. This is Peter telling them there is something that is very true about you that makes this struggle possible. And he helps prepare them for that struggle by reminding them of who they are. Peter is saying, y'all are headed into a kind of war. Or in in their case in Asia Minor, they're already in that standoff with their culture. And he said, but here's the reality that will make your success possible. In precise terms, he's saying, here is your identity and your hope that will carry you through the struggle. And so first he calls them in verse 11, beloved. Peter holds them dear. And because he holds them dear, he gives them these difficult instructions. There is no tension between telling someone the hard truth and loving them. In fact, they go hand in hand. And that is exactly what Peter does here. But more than them being beloved by Peter, they are beloved by God. And they are beloved by their heavenly father. And that fits as he continues to call them sojourners and exiles because their true citizenship is with the Father. It is in heaven with the one who has loved them from before the foundation of the world. More than being strong or useful or successful, these are things we'd like people to use to describe us. Peter calls them beloved. And that is their driving force. And then he says, I urge you. This is the first century letter way of saying, 
listen up, here comes the main point. And he reminds them, here's the main point. You, you are sojourners and exiles. And you, you have to remember that these letters were intended to be read aloud. So for you and for me, it was about a month ago that we started reading First Peter and, and got through those first few verses. For Peter's uh, recipients of the letter, it would have been about three minutes ago that they heard this. So let me remind you of some of those things. In verse 1, he calls them elect exiles in the dispersion. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And he reminds them in verse 4 that you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. He's saying, don't forget. You have security. Don't forget, you have a passport, a heavenly citizenship, and a heavenly inheritance. Therefore, the ways that you interact with the world around you that's watching is going to be different. And therefore, you don't have to fit in because you don't fit in. And now that he has laid out those indicatives, those realities, these facts about his recipients, he now moves into telling them how that changes their imperatives, what they are to do, how they are to act, and it is solely rooted in who God has made them to be. This is remembering that we're only passing through this world. This place is not our home. Therefore, we, like the recipients of this letter, can, can hold the world and our dealings in it loosely. We're not looking for comfort or gain from this world. We're not looking for status and belonging here. All of our comfort comes from our salvation, from our spiritual reality. All of our gain comes from our Savior, our absolute head. If it looks like a monkey and smells like a monkey, it's a monkey. What a monkey is makes a monkey smell like itself. What a monkey is makes a monkey do what a monkey does. Peter's asking his readers to consider, in a culture where they are very different, do you smell like a sojourner? Do you smell like an exile in this world? Because you are one. If you don't smell like a heavenly citizen or look like you are not of this world, ask yourself either whether you are in fact a citizen of this world with no heavenly inheritance, or ask yourself whether you have failed to surrender to the Spirit. And if you're struggling to do that, he tells you to come and ask for his help, and he will help you. He will help you let go of your grasp on this world and its grasp on you. Because so often we just feel helpless. We feel the pressure to look like the world and to smell like the world. We feel like we have to pursue what the world is chasing. We feel like we have to give in to this sin again, and we know that we're going to face it, and we know we're going to give in. And that is not the reality for those who are sojourners and exiles in this world. We feel like we have to do what our financial fears or relational fears drive us to do. No, Christian, you don't have to. Remember who you are. You are beloved by God himself and to him you belong. You're beloved. You're a sojourner and an exile in this land and your citizenship is not here. It is in heaven. And when the world sees you, do they see that reality? Do you look like it? Do you smell like it? 
Your remembrance of who you are is as crucial today as it was for them in those days to remember who they are because this is our weapon in a war. This is not just a nice bonus that you might hopefully one day get to growing in holiness as a Christian. Because there is a war being waged against your whole being right now. And that's what Peter tells us in verse 11. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And this soul is not just the immaterial spiritual existence that we think of. It's speaking of the whole being. That's what that word means. This is a threat against your whole person if you give in to fleshly natural desires. And this isn't just speaking of the fleshly and natural desires related to your physical body, although definitely sexual and bodily sins are included. It does imply self-control toward food and toward alcohol and toward sex and toward exercise and sleep and more. But it also means all longings of the natural person the natural man of the flesh prior to the regenerating work of the spirit. This is speaking of anything that is anti-spiritual or ungodly. This is including the wrong identity, viewing yourself in the wrong lens. This is saying those biting words that reveal that heart. This is compromising your morality. This is an alliance with worldly powers that prove that you don't actually trust God, but that you trust the worldly powers around you more. A fig tree bears figs. An olive tree bears olives. A freshwater spring gives off fresh water. What is the fruit of your life? Or let me ask it backward. If you are truly a beloved sojourner and citizen of heaven, what should your earthly fruit be? One scholar says it this way. She, she says, um, one could also perhaps add the worldly desire to be accepted by society. This is a fruit that many of us struggle with. The worldly desire to be accepted by society, which motivates ungodly behavior, even though it is socially acceptable. Socially acceptable sins. And we have to ask ourselves very pointedly, does social acceptability determine our actions more than divine acceptability? Do we care more that the world doesn't look down on us when we choose what we're going to do, or do we ask what God has commanded us to do? And I'm, of course, not asking you if you know what you need to do to be saved, right? Because all of this grows from a heart that has already been saved, that already trusts in Jesus because we are saved by grace through faith alone. But we cannot forget that that incredible gift of faith is never alone. It comes with fruit. And so our goal and our fruit is to glorify God, not to be accepted by the world, not to make ourselves look good, but to make God look good. And Peter makes that the goal here in verse 12. The whole point is that our conduct would be honorable so that the Gentiles would glorify God. And a final warning before we look at verse 12. These passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul will destroy all of you. 
If your sinful interactions with or your attachments to the world dominate, they will destroy your body and your soul. You cannot live a disintegrated life. The core realities of your salvation are true. And if they are true, you will feel the growing inconsistencies in your sins and the way that you live. And when you do, praise God for that conviction of the Spirit and abstain from the passions of the flesh because God cannot be compartmentalized into one corner of your life. You cannot try to serve Him with your good intentions or your spiritual mindset on Sundays and then serve sin with your actions and your desires the rest of your life. Prepare for the struggle. Remember who you are. And bear consistent fruit. Second, let's look at the honorable living among the Gentiles. Honorable living among the Gentiles in verse 12. Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And this conduct, Peter is going to, again, flesh out uh, in four applications all the way through chapter 3, verse 7. But the question is, who decides what kind of conduct is honorable? Because if you were to list out the world's definitions of honorable conduct alongside your definitions of honorable conduct, there will probably be disagreements. Doesn't the world have a different standard than us? So how do we conduct ourselves honorably among them? Does that mean we just do whatever they say? Of course not. We have to remember that these Christians in these days were not viewed favorably by their culture. Didn't the Gentiles, we understand here in this, in a spiritual sense, the unbelieving nations, especially those surrounding the believers to whom Peter is writing, these unbelieving nations accused the Christians of all kinds of slanderous things back in that first century. A couple historians have written about this. One guy, uh, Suetonius, wrote that Christianity was understood as a mischievous superstition. The world saw Christians as superstitious. And Tacitus says of Christianity that it is a dangerous superstition and Christians as people detested for their evil practices. Christians were detested for their so-called evil practices. And while there is going to be a large overlap between worldly definitions of good and godly ones, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment, the rub is going to come when we disagree. And that's where we need to focus in today. Uh, but for example, here are some similarities. You know, the world views many things that we also view as good, as good. They view, for example, uh, self-control toward food, self-control toward alcohol, self-control toward sex and exercise. All these things, they view them as good. They view honesty in financial dealings as good. Even if they don't do them themselves, they know that it's the right thing to do. They view faithfulness to a spouse as a good thing. And they'll often say, well, good for you. You've been married for 65 years. And they may see faithfulness to a family and to friends as a good thing. And they also will honor the role and position of those who are in authority. If, if, if we do that, they see that as a good thing. And, and they understand that people who respect elders and who respect the wisdom of elders, they understand these in the back of their minds and in their deepest of hearts to be good things. And they expect Christians to be excellent in their professional work. They share that value and they agree that there needs to be concern for the needy and for the widows and for the orphans. There are many things that we can share with the world in terms of goodness. But when there is a disagreement, 
When the world does what is evil in the eyes of God and what is right in their own eyes, when the world around you calls evil good and calls good evil, I don't need to list specifics for you because they come flooding into your mind as you think about the world that we live in today. When those disagreements and inconsistencies come up, you must remember your master. You must live in accordance with your true citizenship, your true identity in heaven. And when you do, you will be slandered. Verse 12 says, when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they're going to call, all, call you all kinds of names and say that you've done all kinds of things wrong. Peter says that that does not change your responsibility and how you respond. We don't just treat other people well because they treat us well. The natural response of somebody were to slander us or to call us mischievous, superstitious people, our natural response is to get back at them or to speak evil against them to prove that we're right, or to undermine them to their friends, or to turn the cold shoulder. But we know that when they strike us on one cheek, we are to turn to them the other. The godly response is to prove to them that their slander is exactly that. Slander. To let our actions speak in a way that prove that these accusations are unfounded. We are to live in honor and love toward them. We are to love even our enemies when they revile us. James tells us in chapter 3, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. You can let the way that you live speak loudly to the world around you, even as they ridicule you. Ridicule you. The goal for Christians then is to live consistently with what is good. But if there's a conflict between what the world says and what God says, we must submit to our God and be ready to face the backlash. Because we will be vindicated on that day of visitation, chapter or verse 12 talks about that day of vindication right at the end. When Christ returns, then all those who trust in him will appear with him in glory, not in shame. We will be proved right as we stand in godliness. So next time you're wrestling with a moral decision, next time you're trying to figure out how do I respond in this situation, ask yourself, will my action be vindicated on that last day? Is this the kind of thing that I want the world to see that I did? Or will the accuser's be right in calling me an evildoer. We must realize there is an eternal dimension to how we act day by day. Because in these deeds, the goal is that the Gentiles will glorify God. Jesus said this as well. He said in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And we see this command throughout the New Testament. Paul says it in Romans 15 and in 2 Corinthians 9. And it's found in many other places. And while all of our good deeds may heap burning coals on their heads, we have to remember that our goal in doing good deeds is not to get back at them. Our goal in doing good deeds is not to hurt them or condemn them, but to love them and to draw the lost to God. By showing God 
to them. Our good deeds are, are engaged in so that we might prove the truth that we speak in the gospel by the way that we live it out in our daily lives. The goal is that the wickedness to which the wicked are enslaved, that wickedness would be killed and that they, the sinners, would be free and that they would glorify God. And Peter says the way that you live has a role in that. There is not an ounce of vengeance as we go about doing good deeds. Let us check our hearts in that way. We have not an ounce of vengeance against evildoers. Our good deeds are motivated by the increased glory of God among the dying world. And we pray that our good deeds would draw them to the light by the Spirit's work. Let's look now at the honorable living under the government. This is the first application that Peter gets to. Verses 13, 14, and 15. As we think about our relationship to the government as people, there are typically two different errors. People will either privatize their Christianity, and therefore it has no outward uh, indication, and people would never know by looking at your life that you are a Christian. The other error is that we get so angry and fearful of the godlessness in the world around us that we rebel and we're disorderly. We cannot be described as those who are at peace with others, and we grow in anger toward them. There are two things that must be done in this passage. First, we must live under human authority, and second, we must live under God's authority. Let's parse that out. For these recipients, the emperor was the head of the Roman government. At this time, it was either Claudius or it was the early days of Nero, most likely. And then there were governors across the empire, also called kings, who were sent to uphold what is good and to protect what is good and to punish evil, ideally. And this is consistent with what Paul says in Romans 13, where he explains, explains that same concept. With impressive clarity, he says, God has instituted authority and you must submit to it or else you are opposing God's own authority that he has set up. We then as Christians, as earthly citizens, because although Christians are primarily heavenly citizens, Christians really dwell honestly and with great earnestness on this earth. And we must dwell with honesty and earnestness on this earth. Christians as earthly citizens, therefore, have the opportunity to act consistently with the gospel, even toward their governors and emperor. Let's, let's look at that more specifically. Christians should not be the ones bringing the insurrections against the authorities that are set up above them. Christians are not those who riot against the rulers of the land, especially not in violence. We don't rise up and demand our own way. We are able, more than anyone else in this land, to give up our rights while we live on this earth. To give up our rights for a greater purpose, to display God's glory. Our call then, even as we interact with the government, is to act honorably. Because this isn't our forever home. This is our, this is our starter home, if you will. Therefore, this world doesn't have to be our dream home. In fact, it can't be our dream home. It's not going to have everything comfortable. And it's not going to be the place that we expect to spend eternity. Because the Lord's going to bring a new heavens and a new earth. That's our forever home. We serve a different king than the one over this earth. We 
are subject to these human governors and leaders because this is where God has put us for a time. And so we must remind ourselves that little reminder of our eternal, of this eternal perspective can go a long way in how we live honorably and peacefully in this land. And Peter takes it back again to remind his listeners of who they truly are. He tells them, you live under God's authority. You belong to God. You are beloved by God. And he says that four times in these verses. I, I don't know if you picked up on it. It's woven in to verses 11 through 17. First of all, in verse 13, it says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. You're not subject to human institutions for the sake of the human institution, but for the Lord's sake. Verse 15, this is the will of God that we would do good under earthly governments. Verse 16 We are people who are free, not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. That's our first and foremost identity as we interact in this world. And lastly, in verse 17, fear God. So when we serve God and live faithfully under his authority, it is going to conflict with the world and we expect the fallout. So in some ways, what Peter's commanding is very subversive. He's commanding these Christians to remember that they have an identity first and foremost over against that of the world. But that identity enables them to live peaceably and honorably to great extents with the governments on this earth. This command dethroned the Roman emperor in the hearts of the Christians to whom this was written. And it placed the Lord Jesus Christ alone in the position of authority in their hearts. So their submission to the emperor in Rome then was out of their obedience to Jesus. And it was out of the freedom that they had found in Jesus, their savior. For you and for me too, we have one king. And it's not the president of the United States. It's Jesus Christ, the savior and king of the world. And yet by his command, we live humbly and obediently and in subjection to the president of the United States. We live in a way that is pleasing to him. That's our driving force, pleasing to God. That's our driving force. That determines our modus operandi. Obedience to God is how we live, and he commands us to obey human governments. Therefore, we obey human governments, not for their sake ultimately, but for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so you say, but what if our conflict with the world ends up killing us? You won't be the first, and you won't be the last. Peter himself who writes this letter, Paul who wrote the same message in the other letters in the New Testament, and many of the family and friends of the people who received this letter were going to be slain by the government. In this case, not an ounce of our reality has changed. We still have one King Jesus, and we have lost not a drop of our imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance kept in heaven for us. If we can view life in that way, then we will have understood even just a little bit what it means that we have a heavenly citizenship that is far greater than anything this world has to offer. And it would then be a privilege to die for the sake of of Jesus Christ. To die is gain. The world is going to see us live lives of integrity when we do. 
And when they see us living with integrity and when they see us living lives of service and worship, their slanderous ignorance will be silenced. Even if not until that day of visitation, their slanderous words will be silenced. The world is going to hurl all kinds of insults at us and you see it day in, day out across the internet. Verse 15 says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We want ignorance to be silenced. Not vengefully. We want it to be silenced so that wisdom and truth will be proclaimed in its place. And Peter's saying that the way that you live can do that. When the world insults you and calls you all kinds of things that aren't true, let your actions prove to them that they aren't true and let your actions show what that truth is as it accents and complements the gospel that you speak. It may not become the new nationwide systematic description of Christians in this world. We may never again be known as the people who do good across the public eye. And that's okay. Because our neighbors will notice. Our co-workers will notice. Individuals around us understand that there's something undeniable and strangely, almost eerily, otherworldly about someone whose life is lived in constant honor with deep integrity. There is something that will either drive the hard heart farther away or it will draw the softened heart when they see us living nobly. And when the world sees us fail and then acknowledge our failure and then repent and find forgiveness and get back up in the strength of the spirit, they have no frame of reference for that. They will be drawn to say, what is this? What are these good deeds, this good conduct? What is this hope and purpose? Yes. There will be mudslinging and mockery and slander for the rest of our lives that we will not see vindicated until that last day. That does not change our response. Don't hear verse 15 and think that this is that you're going to have everything fixed and you're going to be victorious in every conversation when you do something good. That's not what this means. The ignorant may not actually ever be silenced in your life until that day of vindication. And maybe it's a friend who's spreading lies about you. Maybe it's a former confidant who has taken you to court and uses every opportunity to slander your reputation. Maybe it's some other kind of enemy who doesn't know you from anyone else yet makes his or her point to ridicule your faith and the ancient truths that you adhere to. Don't forget, we respond according to our kind, our identity, who we are. Remember that you are free from this whole economy of worldly reputation and slander. Truth will be found out in the end. You may not see it, but it will come and it will all become clear on that day. And so you can live today with integrity, honorably, even facing persecution for it. Because when all this shifting sand of worldliness washes away, you will be found standing upon and living upon eternal truth, Jesus Christ. What does it mean, though, to live free? What does it, live to, what does it mean to, to live as a free person who Peter describes as a servant of God? A free servant? That doesn't make any sense. This idea of freedom, though, is not that American view of I can do what I want mentality. That's not what freedom is. 
Instead, this is the godly, spirit-filled, living according to or with an unbound conscience. This is a light conscience, an unburdened heart. It's living with an internal freedom and an integrity and a coherence. It's an ability to live according to your conviction. And those, we are those who are beloved citizens of of heaven, and so it means that we can choose to live in a heavenly way even while we are under earthly authorities. This is freedom from a slavish submission to the flesh or to sin or to the world or to the authorities of the world. Nobody can demand you to live contrary to your conscience when your conscience is rooted in Christ. Instead, a Christian is able to willingly give up himself or herself in subjection to the human institutions out of free service to God. And Paul even says in Romans 13, he says, be in subjection for the sake of your conscience. Be in subjection for the sake of conscience. This means that your conscience as a Christian will not be at ease if you unlawfully rebel against your authority or lie or live in any dishonorable way toward your authorities. Your conscience will not be at peace. Your conscience will be more at ease though And you will be free in your whole being if you submit to the authorities and ultimately to God when when it conflicts with the earthly authorities. And if your submission to God turns you into a lawbreaker of earthly authorities, you will be more at ease facing the consequences, whether they are fair or unfair, for doing the honorable thing because you obeyed your God. And in obedience, there is great freedom. But if you use your so-called freedom that you have as a Christian to cover up doing evil, Peter says what you're essentially doing is proving to yourself and to all the watching world that you are in fact not free. You are still slave to the world. You remain a slave to sin. You remain terrified of what man can do to you. The call then is for you to abandon your slave master and to rest in God's eternal love for his children and to be his servant and to obey him and to look to Christ in faith. After all, has anyone ever perfectly submitted to their government and to God? Jesus has. One person has. One person did this perfectly and it got him killed. He's the one who submitted to the Jewish and Roman governments perfectly. He's the one who was subject to unjust persecution to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Peter's going to use this as an example in the coming verses. Jesus, in pursuit of the glory of God so that the Gentiles might see the glory of God, subjected himself to the authorities that God had instituted because he was laying down his life for others. He knew as the authority, and to him all authority in heaven and on earth had been given, yet that authority subjected himself for the good of those who were watching. And as you and I watch what Jesus did on that day, we find that we don't just have a good example of how we are to be good citizens. We find the power by which we can be good citizens. We find the one who has saved us from slavery to sin and freed us to live in clear conscience under God in this world. We have found forgiveness of our sins in him.
every single one of us who's washed in that blood that Jesus shed on that cross under submission to the human government. Everyone whose sins are forgiven, we are such because of Jesus' perfect submission to the Father and therefore to the human institutions that killed him. And so we are the Gentiles who give glory to God. We are the ones who right here in this place this morning are here because Jesus obeyed the Father and submitted to his authorities. And this then seeps out into all our lives. Very quickly, verse 17 tells us that the way that we interact now with the world has various realms. We're to honor everyone, love the brotherhood. This is, we're supposed to love the church, the brothers and sisters in Christ. We come here and we do so intentionally, even though it's not easy or convenient. And we make a point to gather with the brotherhood and we do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. We are excited to come here and we look out for one another and we do good to one another, especially to those who are of the household of faith. These are the people that we are sojourning alongside. Look around, we're doing this sojourn and exile together all the way to the gates of the celestial city. And Peter says, fear God, because God alone is able to destroy body and soul. God alone has the authority of of the eternal kind. He is the ultimate authority in the life of a Christian, and he will be proved to be that sole authority in all of the world on that day of visitation. And lastly, then, that means we honor the emperor. In response to our fear of God, we honor the emperor as we've discussed, and by so doing, we prove the true reign of God. And as we do that, many will see his authority and power and give glory to him. These are not easy things. These are hard commands. I can't imagine they were any easier for Peter's listeners. But we know that these are the words of life, and we pray that God, by his Spirit, would enable us to respond appropriately as those who have found life in Christ. And for those who don't trust in Christ, this message is madness. Let us prove that there is great life and obedience to our God and His commands. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your words of life. We thank you for these commands, and we pray that you would help apply them to our hearts, that we would be willing participants in these truths that you have given us. We pray that our faith would be in Christ and in Christ alone. Would we not try to work our way by good deeds into your uh, good favor, but would we see that we are in Christ, blessed by you and loved by you, and therefore are able to live appropriately in this world? We need your strength to do it. And we trust that you will be with us by your spirit. Would we lean upon him and your word every day? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.